the uh, fuzzy sounds, uh, our funky intro music here on Fuzzy Logic 2XX, your science on a Sunday. Now, globally speaking, Canberra is a pretty small place, but in many ways we punch well above our weight. We're one of the few cities or territories anywhere to have achieved a net 100% renewable uh, electricity generation. But there are many, many challenges still ahead of us. And I have two excellent guests to discuss this question today. Where are we now? Where are we going next? And Rebecca Vassarotti is an MLA, a member of the Legislative Assembly. She is the Minister for Environment and Heritage, Homelessness and Housing Services and Sustainable Building and Construction. Good morning, Rebecca. Lovely to speak to you today. And uh, Dr. Anne Hill is the Senior Lecturer at the University of Canberra Faculty of Education the Centre for Sustainable Communities. Welcome, Anne. Good morning and welcome uh, to everyone listening. Uh, A pleasure to have you both. Now, let's kick off with a really big question, and that is I want to get a sense from you what the state of the environment is right now, and we can talk about the local environment in the Canberra. We have the uh, Environment Commission produces a state of the environment report uh, for the ACT, but also globally, and that's a big, big question. So let's kick off with you, Rebecca, and steer that however you want. For sure. Look, it's a big question, isn't it? And I think that, you know, the prevailing word probably is that the environment is pretty fragile at the moment, um, that we know that we have some really huge challenges in front of us, that we are living the impacts of climate of climate change, that, you know, we have felt those very, um, very personally here in Canberra, particularly with extreme weather events such as the bushfires. If we remember um, in, 20, uh, in 2019... In 2020, the bushfires and the bushfire smoke, which really, you know, made it very clear about what we're facing in terms of extreme weather events. You know, if we look across the world right now, and um, we see, you know, incredible weather events happening in the northern hemisphere at the moment, incredible temperatures in North America and Canada, floods in Germany and um, in China, and so it is. You know, it's it's a pretty perilous situation at the moment. We've seen, you know, a rather extraordinary. Um, um, set of events play out over the last week where um, we've got scientific evidence suggesting that, you know, our barrier reef is at great risk mm. and our government lobbying hard to, you know, ensure that it wasn't listed as endangered. So there's a real tussle going on. But we, if we look at the science, we know that certainly our environment is under great pressure. We um, are seeing an extinction you know an extinction crisis with um, species being lost in this in this country at a higher rate than almost anywhere else in the world so certainly um, pretty significant challenges that and an urgency to respond that's that's pretty dire Rebecca and and reflects my own view on the question as well and I've always sort of thought about climate change like I've known about it for a long long time mm-hmm. and it was always something off in the future but now it seems to have arrived in the last couple of years, as you say, with the bushfires in Canberra, the heat wave in Canada, the floods in Germany, and parts of the USA are running out of water. Mm-hmm. I saw pictures online of dams, empty, mm-hmm. empty dams. And what are we going to do 
without water. That's a pretty heavy start now. And what's your take on this? I mean, I agree with Rebecca. I think that there's certainly a, a, an alarming rate of concern at the moment around the world about climate emergencies and the state of things, and we are in a bit of a perilous situation. But I think we have a huge learning opportunity and we have a great deal of uh, imagination and innovation, uh, particularly across disciplines, marrying the sciences with the social sciences and with our community efforts and I think it's an exciting time to be thinking about what the opportunities we are uh, what opportunities we have to address these really critical issues. Well for much of the program today we're going to talk about the opportunities because I think we would agree we don't want to leave people with a sense of helplessness that you know we're so totally screwed that just give up. Would you agree that's the worst thing we could do? Absolutely. And look, it's really what motivates me every day. It's what's motivated me about getting into to public life. And I think it's one of the really exciting things about living in this jurisdiction in particular. This is, you know, this is a community that actually does, you know, does recognise the challenges and has really put up their hands to say, we want to be part of the solution as well. And, you know, certainly what we've seen in things like our commitments around renewable energy is even though we're small, we can actually make a big difference in our local community and actually show other other communities as well and inspire them too. Well, mm. inspire. I love the word you've used there, Rebecca, mm. and inspire and leadership because like I said in the opening then, that uh, we can be an example to the rest of the world of what can be done, not that we want to hold ourselves as being you know, pure or anything. Uh, and does it frustrate you when you hear that oh, Australia is only like 2% of the global carbon emissions, you know, and therefore we can sit on our backsides and do nothing? <laughs> well, and it's not really true either, because if we look at, you know, some of our activities, particularly in terms of our export industries, if we take into account those, we are actually as a, you know, as a country making a significant impact in, in terms of, of, of um, the, you know, the damaging impacts to climate. So I think we've really got to be honest at a per capita level we're actually creating more carbon emissions than many many other communities and when we look at our export industries we are we are absolutely part of what's creating the situation and so we need to take responsibility and be part With of the coal solution. coal and gas exports and so on. Absolutely. Now, well, I think if you look at the ecological footprint of yes. the average Australian, it's somewhere between sort of three to seven planets worth of resources is taken to sustain that footprint of that average Australian. And, and yes, you have a history uh, working in the Philippines and we'll talk a bit more about that and as well. But yes, our environmental footprint per person is enormous. But uh, you used an interesting phrase in your answer a moment ago, Anne, and now here we are on a science program, and you said social sciences, right? Yeah. So now what's the connection? So the connection, I think, as a geographer and a community educator is that we are hearing increasingly strong messages from science, from climate scientists, about the ways in which we need to address these huge issues we're facing. But we actually need other disciplines to help us with communicating those messages, with working with people in communities. And I think social scientists have played a long role, a long-standing role in the stories that we tell, the way in which we communicate stories, the way in which we work at the grassroots in work 
you know, community work. And so certainly for me, that's been a key feature. So, Anne, would, would you say it's not just telling people about the science, but also about listening and hearing about what matters to the general community? Absolutely. And helping people to join the dots between their own individual responses and the responses of community groups, uh, collective endeavours. Now, um, Rebecca, you are ACT Environment Minister. I'll, I'll use it as a shorthand for that longer list. <laughs> Sounds perfectly fine. It is a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> Actually, let's, let's take a quick diversion because you and I first met, uh, I think it was around about June last year, prior to you winning your spot in the uh, Assembly. Uh, can you just give me a quick story about what have you been through since then and, and was it what you expected to to be like an administrator in the uh, ACT government? Well, look, it's been an incredible, incredible journey, actually, since I, I last saw you, uh, saw you, Rod, um, in terms of the, you know, elect the election, um, the election process in ACT it was actually a fantastic experience um, in terms of the opportunity to get to talk to so many people within the local community and talk about our ideas about how we saw um, what some of the opportunities to really build a better normal, which was what we talked about within the ACT Greens. Um, the you know the whole the whole process of getting election elected was um, pretty extraordinary. I think there were there was a fair bit of scepticism, in fact, that I would even be elected. So mm. um, and um, you have to you know you have to be very tempered in your expectations. So it was an absolute delight and just such a privilege um, to be chosen um, to be part of the assembly. And has, so, has it turned out to be what you expected? Um, look, I don't think you know a, a role a role such as this could ever be what you are expected. But I certainly feel very. Um, I feel good that it's you know that I'm in a place I'm in a place doing a role that I can actually make a contribution. While you know I don't think you can ever be prepared. I'm really grateful that I've had a range of different life experience so that I can really draw in in terms of taking on a, a pretty different role to any other. Now, I imagine it's challenging from a number of perspectives. One is just the sheer complexity of what you're doing. But occasionally you're going to come up with a controversial thing. I hear about the kangaroo cull, yep. for example. Yep. And now you may or may not want to talk about that in particular, but uh, you're going to come up against people who really don't like what you want to do. How do you, how do you cope with that? Yeah, look, um, that's, that's actually a really good example because it is a really, you know, it is a really challenging one in terms of I really recognise that there are some people who are just really challenged by the idea um, that this is a, you know, this is an appropriate response. You know, I'm a vegetarian, you know, I really understand from the animal welfare perspective how, challenges, how challenging this, could, this, this is for many people. But certainly the way that I've approached it is ensuring that I sort of engage really meaningfully and deeply with the issues and with the evidence. Um, this is an area where we have done, a, there's been a lot of work done in terms of really ensuring that, you know, if if this is to be an approach, it is, you know, it is, you know, a conservation method of last resort, really, and to really recognise the reality that we, we sit in, that there's been a whole lot of, you know, decisions made that means that this is uh, Have this you is had to develop a tough skin? You look. I think. Um, I think as uh, as someone in political life, you absolutely have to um, have to um, have a tough skin. Um, that 
it is the case that it doesn't matter what you do, there will be some people that don't, don't agree with your situation. But if you have, you know, if you are really, how I have responded to it is in terms of ensuring that I have very strong values, that, you know, that I am true to myself, that I actually do really listen to people and mm. listen to the evidence. Um, and actually, you know, even if I do, I am making decisions that people may not agree with that I'm really clear about why and be open to things changing if information and evidence changes. Well I guess the easiest thing to do when you hit something controversial is to do nothing is just to be quiet and be a soft yeah. target but uh, you have to stand up and say well look I think this and then hold true to that is that right? That, look that's absolutely right and we sort of we just need to be really open and honest you know like mm. in you know as you know as a member of the Greens as you know as, as someone who you know really believes in climate change we actually have to respond to evidence even when it makes us feel uncomfortable um, and so and work out how we you know can look to solutions which may may mean that we can do things differently in the future. I mean, I think if I can jump in there, I think it's also important to be comfortable to be at the edges of what we know mm. and to be comfortable. I imagine that's challenging at times in political life if you actually don't, if you're at the limits of what you know. And I think that with climate science, the complexity is that you have to be able to work out a way forward from the best of what you know and then venture into the unknown. You have to be able to take a few risks. You have to be able to open that's up new really conversation and and kind of innovate, you know, and that's that's hard. That's scary it's, yeah. for, for politicians, I imagine, Absolutely. to be at the limits of knowing. <laughs> and it's actually a really, you know, the, the, the issue of risk-taking has actually been a really interesting one that we've been actually talking about a lot, particularly in terms of um, looking at how we protect the threatened species and how we look at things like rewilding and reintroducing species. Yeah that you know we are engaging with research and science and that means that we do need to take risks as well and things may not actually pan out exactly as as um, as we would have you know anticipated but we've you know learned a whole lot of knowledge and so this is a you know it's in the environment portfolio it's a really interesting area well we're also putting bodies of knowledge that haven't been used to being at the same table together mm -hmm. and so where we think of our first nations people and indigenous ways of knowing, being and doing, and putting them into conversation with science models that have come from a more Western um, lineage of ideas and bringing those two together and then bringing in the arts, the creative, you know, kind of arts-based responses, you've got very different ways of knowing and thinking and you're kind of imagining a different future by putting them all together. And that's where you kind of don't quite know always what's going to come out of that, you know. But what? How exciting! What you know? How what, how, that, that's where the real opportunities are, and I think, you know, particularly in terms of what we can learn, learn from um, First Nations knowledge um, and marry it into our our current situation, mm. which we're certainly really seeing great. with the bushfires. I think, Absolutely. haven't we? The, the introduction of cultural burning yep. techniques and so on into fire management. Yep. Well, and this is probably a good point in which to introduce your background. Now, you have an interesting history. You spent time in the Philippines and so on, and you like to focus on a creative approach to pro solving problems and uh, it's an interdisciplinary, <laughs> try saying that after a beer or yeah. two, which I've not had yet. <laughs> But uh, other ways of approaching problems at the University of Canberra. Do you want to give me a little summary of your own approach and your sure. own background? Thanks, Rod. Uh, yes, yeah, so I actually first got interested in food systems work through 
that kind of uh, marrying of Western and non-Western knowledge systems, if you like. So when I first went to the Philippines back in 2008, I was very interested in their traditional ways of knowing and being and doing and Indigenous practices in the Philippines and uh, how they had survived for you know hundreds of years, different disaster events. And I think in the time I've been working closer to home, I've seen that where in Canberra, say, we have many food growing efforts and all sorts of garden initiatives across Canberra, we've known less traditionally about coping with disaster. And yet in a context like the Philippines, they're sort of facing 20 typhoons a year. And so what my work has been able to do is cross-pollinate those sort of ways of knowing and ways of practising uh, food futures. And, and Well, what are some of the key things you learnt from being in the Philippines, aside from the perspective of looking at it from many different angles? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the big takeaways for me has been community resilience in the Philippines in the face of disaster. Uh, so a recent example during COVID where they've had extreme uh, lockdowns and many people have lost livelihoods has been the setting up of community pantries. So back in April this year, uh, a woman decided to set up a, a bamboo food cart on the street and to encourage people to give what they could and then to take according to their need. And so various people gifted food food and vegetables and so forth. Within three days, about 40 of these carts had been set up in different places across the Philippine archipelago. And then uh, more recently, there's been about 800 of them that have sprung up. And I think that kind of grassroots innovation that has a kind of economic and social benefit has been something I've seen time and time again in the Philippines. Well, that's really interesting now. The word community has got a slightly fluffy, soft feel to it. But I think we can dig a bit more into what community means. What they actually define that term a bit here on Fuzzy Logic. We're going to take a music break. And when we come back, we'll have some more conversation with our guest today, Rebecca Vassarotti from the uh, uh, Legislative Assembly, Minister for Environment, and Dr Anne Hill, Senior Lecturer at the University of Canberra, here on Fuzzy Logic. G'day, I'm Dr Carl Krulitsky. Now you might know me from TV shows like Quantum, Sunrise, Sleep Geeks, radio shows like Triple J, Up All Night on the BBC, books like Science is Golden, Never Mind the Bullocks, Dinosaurs Aren't Dead, and of course I recommend that you get your science from me, but when you can't, or in addition, tune into the fabulous Fuzzy Logic Science Show on Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM, Sundays 11.30. Remember, the universe depends on it. Uh, thank you, Dr. Carl. Yes, you are on Fuzzy Logic. And he, he ad-libbed that, actually. He read it off a script that I gave him. And we're standing at the bottom of the echoey stairwell at the Boiler House Lecture Theatre, University of Canberra. Oh, that's a while ago now. So, yes, indeed, listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show and delighted to have uh, my two guests today, Rebecca Vassarotti and uh, Dr. Anne Hill. Now, before the, uh, the little bit of music, and we, like humans do, uh, we use the term community, and I said, let's talk a bit more about what the word community means, Anne. Have you got some thoughts on that? 
I do. Well, I, I'm hoping I, it's okay to say, Rod, that I've just been reading your fantastic book, Ten Journeys on a Fragile Planet, in which you have a lovely description of community there. Um, and I think you said before we went to the break, this idea of the warm, slightly fluffy term that we think of as being community. And you have a quote in your book that says, we don't have to like our neighbours, but unless we can figure out ways to build toward our common good, we have no hope. And I think from a individual level, even if we think at the level of our households to uh, politicians and to our, our global concerns, we know that relationships can be hard work and we can find ourselves in uncomfortable moments where we maybe don't like our neighbours or we don't get along with them. But that commitment to working together with others, to negotiate uh, to work out ways forward, I think, is for me what community is about. It's that it's a dynamic thing. It's an ongoing process of negotiation, but I think it's a commitment to finding common concerns and then working out how to work together around those concerns. Thank, thank you, thank you for that, Anne. And I think underlying that is a common sense of values that you you share at least to some extent. What do you think is important? And I want to contrast this with the hardcore economic thing that what really matters is money 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 profits and and growth and growth and so on and well those things are obviously important but losing connection with your community so it's so easy in our society to become dis detached mm -hmm. and and alone individual I think that this is a really interesting moment in time. I think that with the with the pandemic, it's created all of, it's created some really interesting dynamics in terms of um, you know this idea that we need to you know stay apart at particular times and really um, sort of isolate. But on the other hand, certainly you know certainly my experience when we you know we unfortunately we are one of the few communities that haven't had to do it very often. But when we did have to go into that period of of staying at home, a bit like the um, Philippine experience I was involved in the mutual aid experience mm. where communities all over you know all over Canberra popped up and the fascinating thing for me was in the in the um, in the group that I was involved in we had hundreds of people put up their hands and say that they could help and we actually didn't have very many people who identified that they needed help so you know people 90 year old women ringing up and saying oh I've got a car and a dis disability sticker so I can go and get food for people yet she didn't identify that she needed you know she might need assistance herself so and I think that with us staying at home we were connecting with our neighbours more we were exploring our neighbourhoods more and the, the, spa the spaces that were important to us so um, it's it's an interesting time I think to be thinking mm -hmm. about community and thinking about the trade-offs around you know economy and keeping um, you know ensuring people have livelihoods but also protecting people's health so I think we've been put in a situation where we've really had to think fund you know deeply about some of these issues that we've sort of taken for granted yes the COVID the COVID thing is really 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 challenging for so many people mm. being isolated if you wanted to uh, inflict misery on a person you put them in solitary mm. isolation and uh it's a really strong impulse in humans for us to help each other I just wanted to add you know, you began that segment, Rod, with talking about economy and then sort of there was a gap in a way in our thinking between economy and community. But I think um, as a member of a, a Community Economies Institute, which is all across the world, a lot of the work we've done is to rethink 
the economy to situate it more in community. And I think the example Rebecca mentioned of that outpouring of concern in Canberra and the examples from the Philippines and all over the world mm. show that for a lot of people, economy is actually a whole range of things that includes, you know, homeschooling efforts during COVID, um, care for the elderly, um, gifting, sharing, practices of reciprocity in communities. And so, you know, we need to kind of be rethinking that big picture idea of economy as well, being I, something abstracted from us. <laughs> an aphorism I like to use is there are no environmental solutions without an economy and there is no economy without an environment. Mm. And in fact, the economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of the environment. Mm. So would you would you say then, obviously, so we need to work within the economy. That's not optional, right? That's must do. But is maybe the issue more the concentration of power and resources and wealth in the economy? Well, I think the challenge is that the economy should be working for communities. It, mm. it shouldn't be that communities are, fuel, are fueling the the, um, the economy. That we need to look at what we are trying to achieve, yeah, trying to achieve as a as a mm. community, mm. Um, and and I think that. That that is the case in terms of where is the where where is the power where does the power lie and who you know who is benefiting um, from the rules that are in place and I think that's long been you know a real concern mm. that many of the many of the policies are, are set so that it's actually vested interests that are the ones that get the, that the concentrate, benefits concentrate power in a few yes, hands right. and disenfranchise so many. So many people. Well, let's enfranchise ourselves now, uh, Rebecca and Anne. And we're going to talk about some community approaches, what we can do locally, because this big picture stuff, like the planetary scale thing, is so, so difficult, so far beyond me as tiny little person sitting here in a studio with you. But uh, that doesn't mean we're not powerless individually, right? So let's talk about some examples of that. Sure. So, look, um, one of the things that we, you know, we've been talking about in the lead up to this conversation is the opportunities around um, around food and agriculture, and and certainly one of the um, one of the real delights in terms of you know taking on a role that I didn't really expect to be taken on as that as as well as being the, as part of being the minister for environment, I was all, I am also the minister for agriculture, mm. and this is a real opportunity I think for our local community as it's something that we haven't put a lot of attention to and it is a real opportunity for us to bring a few strands together certainly in terms of environmental you know impact um, and in terms of ensuring that we do things like grow our food more locally and um, more sustainably so there's some real opportunities there in terms of building community resilience. Do you want, do you want to give us some specific examples? Um, well one of the examples is around urban you know around the opportunities for urban agriculture so that's really is about tapping into our community, bringing our community together um, to actually be using our land um, in more productive ways and also to be able to sort of build our, you know, build our resilience in terms of a community about build, um, growing food in our local community that's close to us, that if we have, you know, things like economic shocks, that we are more resilient and less, you know, less susceptible. Uh, we're, we're more connected with our food. So, Anne... I think, I mean, I think in the lead-in to this conversation, we, yeah. we, we began talking about urban agriculture efforts yes. all around the world mm. and uh, that many cities have 
have signed a commitment to be part of the Milan, Milan Urban Food Policy Pact. So they've kind of, you know, re-gearing, if you like, their cities towards being able to become better um, food bowls mm. for the regions. And I think that's something that um, Rebecca and I certainly began talking about. So UC has this new Future of Food uh, network where we've kind of combined academics who do research in food across the university, so education, uh, the arts and, and uh, design and also nutrition and food systems thinking. And so I think that's a really great opportunity to start to think about how research can play a role working with government and non-government sectors in our what, Canberra region. What are some of the locations around Canberra where we've got community gardens and so on? Can you talk about some yeah, of those? Yeah, so I know my colleague Bethany Turner, who, um, who I believe might also be on radio today somewhere in Canberra. Um, she's done a lot of work with our Canberra Organic Growers and with Canberra City Farm. And uh, actually Canberra City Farm approached us about you know, kind of trying to work across social and cultural difference in the Canberra region. So I think in terms of our intercultural uh, kind of community dialogue in Canberra, what a great opportunity mm -hmm. to bring different groups of people together, some of our migrant communities, including people from the Philippines, and to start to use our Canberra community garden networks as a forum for that. It was really interesting. I was really lucky actually to catch up with the Canberra um, Organic Growers Society um, only last week and they were talking about um, the you know fantastic work that's happening with these community gardens that are scattered all over Canberra and mm. again about increased interest um, so that you know we're really looking at opportunities to um, provide them with more opportunities because they have so many people that are really interested in, um, in more you you know, in, in getting involved in, in this movement. Well, Rebecca, you, we have lots of groups in the community wanting to do things like this. What kind of things can the ACT government do to assist? Look, I think that we can really support the community in developing a vision about what we want in, in relation to um, uh, to agriculture more generally and urban agriculture particularly. Um, this is, as I said, it's an issue that we haven't really talked about a lot. Um, so we look at some of the initiatives that are happening in other jurisdictions like Melbourne where they've really looked at developing a food bowl um, for for the city and for the for, for a growing city, so I think that there is a, there is quite a lot of work that you know I, I think we need to do in terms so of bringing the community does, together. Does this come down to I'm, I'm looking for some specific things that you can do, like is allocating land or funding or legislation or what sort of things are people asking you to do? I think it's it's potentially all of those. So I think the, the the first thing that we need to do is actually bring community together to have the conversation, to identify for our local community what are the key you know like what are the key things we're trying to achieve, and what are the you know what are the practical supports that we can put in place. There are some good programs already running, um, but you know there isn't a clear framework in terms of what we're trying to achieve through those. In the lead into this conversation, uh, Rebecca and I were talking about bringing community together for sort of kind of visioning workshops, if you like, and that's something that I've been involved in um, in the Philippines, and I'd love to do more of that work here, where you actually bring community groups together. So like all our kind of Canberra um, community food initiatives, for example, with government um, and with other institutions like our universities, and you actually map out what are the things we're already doing, what are the resources we already have, what are the different skills we have. You know, we might think of that as a kind of um, 
an asset or strengths-based mapping of all the mm. things we're already doing. What land uh, do we have? What resources do we have at hand? And then how might we start to plan out a different vision using those resources. So I don't know yeah. whether that's no, something that you could see working, but it seems an exciting opportunity. There really are. And there's, and I think you're right, and there is really good work that is happening. We've been sort of doing some and supporting work around food in the capital um, initiatives. And so that's really sort of bringing together a range of local local um, producers and, uh, and people who are doing fantastic things and really identifying where some of the gap, you know, where some of the mm. gaps are and what we can do in terms of really you know building on we've got some such great assets in this you know in this mm-hmm. local community we you know we have a we have an incredible range of expertise you know with our ac- academic institutions the CSIRO and others mm. we have incredible local producers that are doing really exciting things we, we have... were talking about food waste weren't That's we right. and I, I was mm. thinking of um, one of my future food colleagues Nena Namovsky and others in the Canberra University who do work with things like the prickly pear yeah. so this morning on my way in here I was looking up you know the origins of prickly pear and how it came to Australia and how it became this weed and then we've discovered more recently through their scientific research that it can be used to fight cholesterol and things like that you know so I think it's interesting to think about these different food items in new ways and mm-hmm. partly that's the conversation mm-hmm. where we need to be imagining and different that, that's, ways that's for using a, food and that's a cultural change as much as anything I think we might uh, break to a song now and uh, we're talking uh, <laughs> environment we're talking food sustainability and communities here on fuzzy logic without guest uh, ACT Environment Minister, amongst other things, <laughs> Rebecca Vassarotti and Dr Anne Hill from the University of Canberra. Anyway, the industrial food system. Can we kind of drill in a little bit to what that word means? Hmm. It uh, makes me think a lot about when I began writing my PhD back in 2008 and I was looking at the industrial food system and reading a lot of books on how we turned our you know, chickens into chicken Kievs and we, we ended up with so much on our dinner plate that was processed and, and um, we've, we'd moved much more into fast food and fast production. So I guess we're really talking industrial food system about a particular small number of foods that have been produced on a mass scale in mass global markets and that have become commodities and that it's led to a lot of um, industrial production and industrial agriculture. So produced in factories, uh, highly processed, wrapped in plastic and a small number of ingredients or smaller? A smaller number of food items. So we've, in a way, because we relied on monoculture and and large-scale crops to produce that. So, you know, Mm. we think of our wheat and our soy products and our canola and those sorts of things that have become commodities. But really, behind that, behind that industrial food system actually is there's a plethora of, you know, there's a huge diversity of plant foods and, and and. items that could make up a diverse food diet and that's I guess counter to an industrial food system. One of the things that really jumps out to me when we sort of look at industrial food systems is that you know the the key 
the key um, reasons that people talk about it being, you know, a good thing is around efficiency and, mm. and cost. Um, but I think when you start to dig into what's going on, you, rec- you realise that a lot of the costs of, in, of this system have, have been externalised. And mm. so there's extraordinary risk in terms of monocultures that mm. we are losing, you know, diversity in our genetic, you know, in the mm. genetic um, makeup of our foods that so that if there is disease that, you know, this, this will, you know, create pretty catastrophic... Well, let, let's talk well, about... fossil the, fuels. We've, had, we've relied right. on fossil fuels in the production of that's industrial right. agriculture. Yeah. Let, let's talk about uh, monoculture and diversity and why that matters. So my, my, my take, and tell me if you think I'm on the right track, because I have a systems background apart from media, and that is... A single point of failure in a system is makes a system very vulnerable. Mm. So if you if your food system is relied on, say, or the potato famine yeah. is maybe a classic and probably slightly misunderstood one, I think. But if you're just reliant on eating potatoes and potatoes get a blight in them, you're in real trouble and people will start to starve. Or bananas. Mm. Bananas, I mm-hmm. think they have almost no genetic diversity. Mm. So if if we get a, a disease into bananas, then the banana cr- crops around the world are going to disappear. So what do you think? Is that kind of the way you think about these things? Yeah, look, absolutely. And also the other interesting thing is that, again, with the impacts of climate change, this issue of biosecurity becomes actually more of a threat mm. as well. Mm. And so certainly over the last couple of years, even in Australia, we've seen a significant increase in biosecurity threats. I mean, like we are, you know, again, we're very lucky as an island, as an island nation that we've been able to insulate ourselves from some of the, you know, significant plant and animal diseases that other mm. countries have seen. But, you know, like even if we see, you know, some of the diseases that might um, impact on our honeybees, you know, our major oh, pollinator, might, yeah, yeah would, would be absolutely catastrophic across the, you know, across our whole food system. So, um, you know, the more that we um, limit our options, um, the more, you know, the more exposed and, we and are. And I guess the reason yeah. we've limited our options is primarily efficiency, cost, uh, profit. So the, the more you, there's the uh, just-in-time manufacturing mm. system in Japan called Kanban, mm. and when the Kobe mm. earthquake uh, hit, uh, all of a sudden they had no stock, nothing mm. in stock. So the whole system ground to a halt. Mm. I mean, I think what we're really looking to do and climate scientists are saying this is to diversify our food systems and to have a diversity of strategies and you know it's interesting that you mentioned bananas rod because many years ago I think it was 2014 I wrote a paper all about banana trade and different stories of banana trade so they move from you know the mono cropping the monoculture of bananas to looking at alternative trade so you see movements of trade of bananas fair trade of bananas across parts of Asia and then I told the story of a community economy of banana growers in the Philippines that were making a lakatan sort of banana with local farming. And then the last story came back to the Philippines and the supermarkets in Australia having a, you know, the, grow, the growing area of bananas in Australia around, the, I'm sorry, the top of Queen, the Queensland, the top of New South Wales, and our dependency in, in terms of our supermarket mm. supply of bananas 
But if we look beyond the supermarket supply of bananas, we can see lots of places where people are making efforts to grow bananas in communities in Australia, just as they were in the Philippines. So I told these stories of different ways in which we could engage with bananas. So Well, it's, yeah. it's great how, how that, that story can illuminate something much, much mm. deeper. And we, we are really so disconnected because you go to the supermarket and I hate, the, well, why do they wrap them in plastic? Mm. Oh, yeah. it drives me nuts. Yeah. <laughs> it drives me bananas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we're, yeah, we're certainly trying to do some work, some work in that area. And I think, you know, diversity is one strategy. Mm. I think, you know, and again, with food, this isn't always going to be possible, but another strategy is localisation. So, mm. a lot of, uh, you know, a, a real strategy is around ensuring, particularly for the food products that we can, that we are actually buying, you know, like we are, you know, much more connected and localised. So, you know, we, we, we see the, you know, the movements around, you know, um, tracking food miles and also around sort of the slow food movement. Mm. It's just really mm. around, you know, recognising that if we, you know, if we are connected um, to our food through knowing the growers and having a relationship, we're just going to de deal with it differently. That's why we've seen the, um, the incredible growth of farmers markets. It's actually something that consumers really love because they want to be more oh, connected. Now, Rebecca, you, you probably guessed by now I have a bit of a thing about plastic, right? <laughs> now, that's something we have innovated in the ACT, haven't we? Single-use plastic, so we're winding back. We Can are. you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so look, um, from July um, this year, um, we have sort of introduced legislation which will see a phasing out of single-use plastic. It is, you know, it is a pretty challenging issue because we are so dependent on it and so mm. there are, you know, certain coming into our our supermarkets there are products that um, you know are already pre-packaged that have things like your, your your little forks and spoons that are inside the the packaging which means that there are some things that we can't you know we can't deal with locally we'll really need to look at it at a national level and um, we also know that there are some items um, and straws are a really good example of that where there are a part of our community our disability community what's that the, really rely on what's that. the scope what what particular Items or how is this framed? This ban on yeah. So um, look, it's a it, it's a phase product, uh, a phase product thing. So that there are now um, a certain number of products that you are unable to get in the ACT. Next year we will move to another range of products. Um, mm. So we're working really closely with businesses, with with with, the, with community members, and it's been really interesting in terms of you know like straws is actually a really good mm. example. Drinking straws. Yeah, of now we're seeing in many, um, many um, local businesses um, that they are providing, you know, um, alternatives such as, you know, paper straws and the like because of that real shift in... in so straws, people. what else? Plastic cutlery? Uh, yeah, plastic cutlery, um, uh, containers. Plastic packaging pa on food yeah. items, will that change a bit? That will, yeah, mm. that will change. And mm. there's certainly, there's some really good local, you know, like there's some really good local businesses that are mm. really working um, to, to phase out um, even even before legislation. What can we do about uh, coffee cups? Coffee cups is, well, what we can do is we can try and stop using them. So, you know, like actually bringing the keep cups. Mm. Again, businesses are doing really fantastic things. I um, often get my coffee from the Canberra Museum and Gallery um, gallery cafe and they actually have just a, a 
a, a lot of um, cups that you can actually take and they say, you know, bring it back when you can. So mm-hmm. there are there are ways that we can really look at, you know, reducing reducing that um, and sort of really and only cafes doing are it. giving people a discount yep. often for bringing right. their own cup, so which I think e- for, for those stuff. that are still yep. dollar-driven, I think right. that helps them. <laughs> but what, what, what strikes me about your story, Rebecca, is this is driven by attitudes and it's changing mm. perception on the part of the people in the community mm. Did you want to comment on that, Anne? Because that's a really big part of your work. I, I think it is about changing perceptions of people in the community, but I think it's also that many people are not aware of things mm. until they actually have that you know, light bulb moment. So I think partly what it is, uh, and I see this in your work, yeah. Rebecca, as well, is about helping people to join the dots yeah. and making those connections for them, you yeah. know, and helping them to become part of of the you know the the taking responsibility I guess I think in this time where there's a lot of hopelessness and a lot of despair and a lot of challenges globally people need to be reminded that they can do something and that's that sort of shift from um, you know thinking globally but acting locally where people might feel very disempowered that they can't actually do anything the problems are too big and what can I in my own little patch of the world do but I think what we're what we're very aware of is that you can join people together and get them to think about how they can take some small actions and that that can actually make a difference on a on a accumulative level you know yeah and I think one of the other really interesting you know like for me sitting um, in the privileged position of, of, of being a member of government is working out what is the you know what is the appropriate response of government and that will be different for different things like sometimes it will be legislatively driven um, to really assist people make the shift you know like the the, pa- the, the plastic bag ban is probably mm-hmm. a good example of that was that was something and the again the single plastic um, ban where we we can lead you know we can really lead lead the debate and really assist people with um with behavior change we're sort of looking at you know um, getting the getting food waste recycled and so that's about government actually providing you know services and uh, services to assist people and in some ways it's actually around supporting communities to draw on the assets that they have to to do Rebecca we're running to the end of our time now are there any other major initiatives that you want to talk about before we wrap up? Like we've got plastics, we've got local food and so on? Well, look, I think we've just touched on the issues around food waste. So I think um, sort of looking at actually what we can do to ensure that the food that we are buying, um, that we are, you know, we're buying what we need and consuming it and then um, getting, and then when we um, dispose of it, we're doing that in a way that isn't, you know, creating additional environmental impact. So there's a whole lot of work that we need to do that in terms of supporting there's great local businesses that are doing composting we will be rolling out territory territory wide food um food um recycling processes so there's yeah so that i think that's an area of um significant um work that that will happen as well well thank you rebecca now uh, uh, and we've got a, an online event coming up on the 5th of august and i've got a personal stake in this and in fact we have one coming up we think it will be october but let's talk the uh the, the 5th of august one first so the the Future of Food Network at University of Canberra is supporting uh, Rod Taylor's uh, book, Ten Journeys on a Fragile Planet, and having a conversation around that book. 
and I think you said 5th of August, but it's in the afternoon and it will be advertised via Eventbrite so people can go to the Future of Food Network, University of Canberra, and have a look for that Eventbrite registration to join that event. So I think it starts at 3, starts you said, three. Rod, and goes till 4.30 uh, on Thursday, the 5th of August. So we'd love for you to join us for that conversation. Awesome, and uh, we'll be promoting that. Now, Rebecca, you will be... I really hope you can still join us. We had to defer our event, which was the 29th of July, till, we think, October... Uh, We'd love you to come along to that too yes, if you can be there live I with us. I think uh, if the diary <laughs> lets me, I will be there. Yeah, great. <laughs> so, all right, we're looking forward to that and we'll give that a plug. And just speaking of plugs and speaking of plastics, uh, what plastic item can you think of? How about a pen? <laughs> that was a segue, folks. That was me introducing the Ask Fuzzy in the Canberra Times the column today. And I mull over the origin of the pen and ink. Where did ink come from? Where do pens come from? Uh, original quills, the Dead Sea Scrolls were written using reeds and the carbon ink mixed with various other stuff and lots of fun. And I think that's about it for today. We've got to say goodbye. It's been a real pleasure to have you on Fuzzy Logic today. Uh, Rebecca Vassarotti, ACT uh, Environment Minister amongst other things. Dr Anne Hill, Senior Lecturer at the University of Canberra. Uh, good on you. It's been an absolute pleasure, Rod and Rebecca. Thank you. Fantastic to speak to both of you. And uh, we'll be back on Fuzzy Logic. Plenty more coming away. Catch you later.